turn with me to the book of Acts. I warned you last Sunday morning that if you skip last Sunday night and this past Wednesday night, uh, chapter 5 would just go right past you, and indeed it has. So uh, we will pick up this morning at verse 8 of chapter 6 and also cover chapter 7, the Lord willing. Now I do want to warn you about something. In a narrative this long, uh, when we get into talking about it in a moment, I'm just going to have to give you some overviews and move quickly through some things. I, I wish I could spend some more time in exposition, but I, I, I want you to see the overall passage and what's being communicated. And everything in the message is not really going to come together this morning until toward the end. So just be prepared that we are heading somewhere, okay? And... Uh, I also want you to hear my heart this morning about something. Uh, we're not ready. We're not ready. And when I say we, uh, I, mean, I mean the church at large. I'm, I hope you hear some concern about something. And again, I think that will become clear by the end of the message. Uh, I do want to ask you to find... Psalm 139 also for later on in the message. And 1 Peter chapter 4. Faith on trial. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? Faith on trial. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. 
But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now skip down to verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now look down to verse 30. By the time we get to verse 30, though, know that all of that time of Moses in the wilderness is coming to pass now. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed... An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now look down to verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Look down to verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit 
as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Look down at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we take great comfort in the fact that you are our refuge and our strength. A present help in time of trouble. God, you are mighty. You are omnipotent. You're omnipresent. You're omniscient. All wisdom and power and glory belongs to you. God, we pray today that you would help your people. Strengthen us for life and ministry in these days. Lord, in the world we see such trouble for the saints. And unfortunately, in America and Europe, it seems like there is a spiritual coldness or an apathy. God, help us to arise. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, help us to walk worthily of the ministry and the calling that you've given to us. God, may we stand strong. May we put on the full armor of God. And may we stand strong in these evil days. Lord, we know the Bible tells us that we don't battle merely against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Lord, be with your children. May we see your hand at work in the world and in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we've got to remember that the Jews were given a free pass by the Romans to practice their faith. The Romans demanded of most people that they worship the Roman gods. But when it came to the Jewish people, the Jewish people were grandfathered in, we might say. And they realized in in the Roman Empire it was actually more advantageous to them if they would leave the Jews alone and let them worship. And so the Jews sort of got a free pass. We need to understand that the Christians, the early Christians, did not. We also need to understand that for a period of time at least, oftentimes it was the Jews who caused some of the instigations against Christians. 
Then in 64 AD, when Rome was set on fire, 10 out of the 14 sections of the city of Rome were burned to make way for Nero's building projects. Well, a rumor started among the people that Nero himself had started the fires, which he probably did. To squelch these rumors, initially Nero sent lavish gifts to the citizens of Rome. Now when these lavish gifts didn't appease them, Nero decided he needed to take another approach. He needed somebody to blame for the fires. And so he turned to Christians and he blamed them. They became an easy scapegoat for him because after all, had the Christians themselves not even said that one day the world would end in a burning inferno. And so he blamed Christians. Local persecutions broke out against Christians. Some rulers tolerated Christians, some didn't. It was kind of a mixed bag across the Roman Empire. And then finally at the Edict of Milan in 312 AD, Constantine made Christianity a tolerated religion. He felt Jesus had helped him come to power and told him to conquer by the sign of the cross. And Constantine took this to be a heavenly sign to him directly. Now folks, before this time, you and I need to understand how severely many Christians suffered. They were thrown to wild beasts. They were burned alive. They would be put on blazing hot large iron pans and literally fried to death. Often they were severely tortured before they were killed. And of course tradition has it that all of the apostles died the death of a martyr except for the apostle John. And John was exiled to the isle of Patmos to work in the mines there. But to show you this isn't simply an ancient problem, I want to talk to you a moment about modern times. French philosopher and revolutionary Regis Debray has spent the last 10 years of his life decrying the mistreatment that Christians are receiving throughout the Middle East. Now you need to understand Debray himself is not a Christian. And politically, he votes to the left even of the far left in France. But Debray remains very concerned that Christians and with them their rich histories are being exterminated. And Debray is very frustrated that Westerners are not paying attention to what is happening to Christians around the world. Now according to a study recently released by the Pew Research Center about three-fourths of the population of the world lives under a government which has highly restricted religious freedoms and of these restrictions most of them are aimed directly at Christians. Some humanitarian groups have estimated that 80% of all religious persecution in the world today is aimed at Christians. 
The Catholic Bishops Conference puts this number a little lower, not much. They put it at 75%. But whatever the percentage, the reality is undeniable. Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. And this is confirmed by studies as diverse as the Vatican Open Doors, the Pew Research Center, Commentary, Newsweek, and The Economist. And in fact, the problem is so vast that it it exists in more than 135 nations of the world today. And it's becoming worse. Persecution of Christians is becoming worse. In fact, if you were to look at the spring edition of the Journal of Theology by Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, you'll see that they have decided to take their entire spring volume to dedicate it to this theme alone of Christian suffering. And they report that in several hot spots around the globe, Christians are literally in danger of becoming extinct. Of course, this week we've seen the situation of the Yazidi Kurds and the Iraqi Christians fleeing from their homes and stranded atop a mountain in northern Iraq. You and I need to remember that Jesus himself said to his disciples that before the end it would get so bad that people in Judea, they needed to come down off of their rooftops and without even going into their homes to get anything, they needed to flee. That it was going to become that bad that that they just needed to leave everything behind. And he said, woe to those who are nursing babies in that time or to those who are pregnant. Of course, we've seen in recent weeks how this radical Islamic group, ISIS, that even most Muslims are scared to death of, they're even doing things today like beheading little children. My point is that as we read Acts 6 and 7, we somehow believe that we are centuries and centuries and centuries removed from these type of events. And folks, we see what's going on in the world today that indeed we're not. In fact, times like this may even be closer to you and I than we realize. Now what we see here is that dangerous days call for bold and courageous witness. God never promised us isolation from troubles, but He did promise us His power and His presence and ultimate deliverance, even if we have to wait to heaven to get that deliverance. Faithfulness to Christ is worth it and it will be rewarded one day beyond beyond even our expectations. God's justice will indeed prevail. Now folks, as we look at this text this morning, we, we come back to this gentleman that we've been introduced to before. This gentleman by the name of Stephen. 
Stephen was one of the earliest deacons of the church and we saw what kind of character Stephen had. He was a man of a good reputation. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and we see what God did in and through a man like that. A man who was not afraid to stand up and be counted for Christ. Now first of all this morning I want you to see with me that faithful Christians may be opposed. Beginning there in verse 8, I'm not going to read through all these verses again. We're going to cover them pretty quickly. But look at this confrontation with Stephen. And look at how Stephen is described there in verse 8 as a man being full of grace and power. And a man who is performing great wonders and signs. And that brings us to verse 9 where we see this conflict beginning with him. And we're told that among those opposing Stephen was the synagogue of the freed men. And so we're introduced here to to the synagogue. We know what the synagogue was. The synagogue was a teaching outpost, a satellite of the temple. It rose up during the days of the Babylonian captivity when they were hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and could not worship at the temple. They, they built synagogues where they would, they would study the law and the prophets and the wisdom writings. It, it was a little outpost of, of Jewish discipleship. No sacrifices were done there, but that's where teaching was done. And these synagogues literally spread out all over the world wherever Jews were found. And then, of course, even after they came back from the Babylonian uh, exile... These synagogues started rising up in Israel during those 400 silent years between the the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. They're called 400 silent years. In reality, they were anything but silent. But here's where the synagogues really started multiplying a lot. And we're told that this was the synagogue of freedmen. Now, these would have been the descendants of Jews who were captured and enslaved by Pompey in 63 B.C. and taken away to Rome. They were later freed and they, and they formed a Jewish community there. And, and these here are their descendants and they're part of the opposition that rises up against Stephen. Now joining with them were Jews from Cyrene. That's the chief city in Libya, northern Africa, and Alexandria, the capital of Egypt. Now, Alexandria was second only to Rome in the the Roman Empire. And both Cyrene and Alexandria had significant Jewish populations. Now, joining with Stephen's opponents were also men from Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia was a Roman province in the southeast corner of Asia Minor adjoining Syria. Tarsus... The birthplace of Paul was one of its principal towns. And Asia is a reference to the western part of Asia Minor and Ephesus was its capital. Now some feel like these particular opponents of Stephen may have even been from the very synagogue in Tarsus where Paul, when he was still Rabbi Saul, was a member. And that Paul was one of the ones here instigating this opposition against Stephen. As we're going to see in a moment, they laid their garments at the feet of Saul. 
But what we see here is very significant. We have one Hellenistic Jew who's come to faith in Christ by the name of Stephen. And he's debating with other Hellenistic Jews who have not been converted. And what Stephen is doing is a very practical application of 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible commands us that you and I need to prepare ourselves and we need to be ready ready to give a defense of our Christian faith and of a reason for the hope that we have. Stephen is doing that. Verse 10, Stephen had wisdom, had such wisdom to a degree that they couldn't stand up against him. Jesus promised his disciples before he left them that when they got in predicaments like this, They didn't need to worry about the words that they would speak. That in that time, in that moment, words would be given to them from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would empower them. That's exactly what is happening with Stephen. Now the result of this debate and of Stephen's upper hand on them was that they had to resort to secret measures and lies. And slander. It's exactly what they did against the Lord Jesus when they put Jesus on trial right before his crucifixion. This is what happens when someone does not have truth on their side and and they're losing the debate. Oftentimes they resort to other measures like personally attacking their opponent. And so the attack here that begins innocently enough with theology spins out of control and now it centers on slander and violence now that they're losing the argument. And this charge of blasphemy would have been very serious. You see, according to the book of Leviticus in chapter 24, if a person was found guilty of blasphemy, they were to be taken outside of the city and stoned to death. And so that's exactly what they're doing. They're charging Stephen with blasphemy against Moses and God and the law of God. Now actually Jesus had already pointed out to the Pharisees that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. The law pointed to him. He said on one occasion you search the scriptures hoping to find life in them and you don't realize that they point to me. And you won't believe in me. And then he told the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. The Bible says they didn't know who he was. And he opened their minds to understand the word of God beginning with Moses. How all of these things had to take place. And the Messiah had to suffer and be crucified. In verse 12 here we see that they're stirring up an angry mob. A public mob. And we see raw emotions at work here. It always amazes me how mobs can get out of hand. We see this on the news today. We we look at, at CNN or Fox News. And we'll see some hot spot around the world. Something has happened. And how there'll be a public mob. And they'll be marching through the streets. And they'll be looting stores and burglars burglarizing. In fact, we've seen that this past week in Ferguson, Missouri. It's crazy this mob mentality that develops, but that's exactly what they're stirring up here against Stephen. In verse 13, they produce their false witnesses. Verse 15, we're told that Stephen had the face of an angel. Now folks, think about this a moment. 
In this context of a life-threatening mess, Stephen had the radiance of the Lord all over him. Now folks, that just shows the awesome power of God. It serves a reminder to us too that in the midst of the storm, God is right there with us. In fact, sometimes it's in the midst of the storm where we sense His presence and His peace the greatest in our lives. The Bible talks about God's children being given a peace that surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all understanding because it's not logical. Based on somebody's circumstances, what they may be going through, they may should be worried or or fretting or panicking, and yet they have peace. And that's why it's the peace that passes all understanding. And that's the kind of peace that Stephen has here. And folks, it is because the presence of the Lord is all over him. Now Luke is showing us something else too. They have accused Stephen of being against Moses. But actually Stephen is just like Moses. Remember what happened to Moses when he came down off the mountain from receiving the law of God. The Bible says his face shined to the extent that he had to put a veil over it. And likewise here Stephen's face is shining. Listen to what John Stott says about this. He says, what is it not God's deliberate purpose to give the same radiant face to Stephen when he was accused of opposing the law as he'd given to Moses when he received the law? In this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had divine approval. Indeed, God's blessing on Stephen is evident throughout. The grace and power of his ministry, his irresistible freedom, and his shining face were all tokens that the favor of God rested upon him. But folks, what I want you to see at this point, Here was a saint of God being opposed. Somehow or another, and I'll say more about this in a moment, we we somehow think that this isn't supposed to happen, and yet it is the consistent witness of believers all through the Word of God that oftentimes those who are faithful to the Lord are opposed for their faith. And I might be talking to one of you right now. Maybe in your own family. You're facing opposition because of your Christian faith. Maybe at school, we need to remember as our young people get ready to go back to school on some of their campuses and among some of their friends, if they take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to face opposition. Some of you at work may have faced that. It's normal. Stephen, a saint of God, finds here that he is being opposed. He's being slandered. All manner of evil things are being spoken against Stephen simply because he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the second thing I want you to see beginning in chapter 7 is faithful Christians must give a defense of the faith. Beginning there in verse 2, we see what Stephen begins to do. He starts, he starts uh, giving them this oral history of their own religious history of the Old Testament and how God called them as a nation into being. 
Now actually, folks, there is no discrepancy between what Stephen says here and Genesis chapter 12. Some have tried to say there's a discrepancy. There's not. In fact, they both fit together like a glove. You see, Genesis 12 refers to Abram's second call to go to a new land. As Stephen points out here in Acts chapter 2, while he was still in the land of Mesopotamia, he was from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, God issued that first call to Abram's life to go to a new land and God was going to build a new people. They went as far as Haran. They settled there. That's where Abram's dad died. And then Genesis 12 points out that it was in Haran that God had to once again come to Abram and give him a second nudge to get busy about what God had called him to do. And so the two passages fit together like a glove. Now in Stephen's defense that he gives, he he very simply relates Old Testament history and what he's doing, he's drawing a net around these people. I hope you'll see that in a moment. It shows us the benefit of knowing Bible stories and Bible history. If you know the Word of God, then you can apply it. Could you sit down with somebody this afternoon, if you bump into somebody in a restaurant and strike up a conversation with them, and they find out that you're a Christian and they don't understand what it means to be a Christian and they don't have any church background, they don't have any Bible background whatsoever, would you be able to cover with them the overall narrative of the Bible? It's referred to as the meta-narrative. And that scarlet thread of redemption, how ever since the fall of man, God has been weaving this red, this scarlet thread of redemption all through the Bible that climaxes in the person of Jesus and what he did for us there at Calvary. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to make sense out of the big story of the Bible? That's what Stephen is trying to do here with his audience. And as he does so, you'll notice one thing that he's going to point out in particular is the theme of of disobedience and rebellion. He's wanting them to see how their forefathers have always been disobedient to God and they rebelled against what God was doing in their midst. They don't understand what he's doing yet, but what Stephen is doing, he's putting the noose around their neck, so to speak, and he's beginning to tighten it a little bit more with with everything that he mentions here. Now beginning in verse 9, he gives the example of Joseph and how Joseph was despised uh, by his brothers. They were jealous of him because his dad had given him that coat of many colors. They were jealous of Joseph. And so they rose up in their jealousy against Joseph and they sold him into slavery. Joseph, just like Jesus, was rejected by his brethren. But God was with Joseph. God brought victory for Joseph and it was Joseph's brothers who ultimately one day had to come bow down before Joseph and humble themselves before him. Well, he doesn't stop with Joseph. In verse 20, he introduces us to his next character to make his point, Moses. In verse 26 and 27, we're told about Moses' first rejection by his fellow Israelites. 
He did miraculous signs among them. There were the ten plagues in Egypt. There was the manna in the wilderness. There was the water from the rock. There was the ten commandments that God gave him uh, up on the mountain. And the people witnessed all of this. Moses' contemporaries witnessed all of this. And yet look at what Stephen says about them in verse 39. They wanted to turn back to Egypt. From the time they left Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, got into the wilderness, and their bellies got hungry and they got thirsty, what did they immediately begin to do? They began to bellyache, to gripe and complain and murmur against Moses. Unbelievable they'd seen God do all these mighty acts. And they still were not content. Stephen's about to barbecue them. You you can sense it coming. He mentions about the golden calf. How how when Moses tarried too long up on the mountain, they said, where's this Moses? Aaron, make for us an idol, a, a God that we can serve like we had in Egypt. And they bowed down to this golden calf. Boy, how soon they forgot all of the blessings of God. Aren't we the same? We forget the blessings of God. They forgot all these manifold blessings of God and they turned back to the dead idols of their past and they murmured and they complained. And what did God do? Look at verse 42. It says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Does that sound like something you read in your New Testament? Yes. It sounds like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Paul points out in Romans chapter 1 that when people have the truth of God and yet they suppress it. They ignore it and try to push the truth of God aside and sweep it under the carpet. God does something. God greases the sliding board. God says, okay, you're going to turn away from me and you're going to turn away from my truth. I'll help you. And God, in Romans 1, Paul says three different times God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their lust and to their passions. He gave them over to impurity and he gave them over to a debased mind and Moses is saying that's what God did with these children of Israel in the, in the wilderness and then finally in verse 43 what did God do in his judgment of the nation God sent them away into exile in Babylon To the accusation that Stephen is running down the temple and speaking against it, he points out that we serve such an awesome God, he can't be contained in temples as God himself pointed out in Isaiah 66. God doesn't dwell, there's not a temple around that could contain the sovereign God of the universe. Solomon, after he finished the temple in his dedicatory prayer, he admitted that to God. God, I've built you this great temple, but I realize at the same time, you don't dwell in temples. There's not a temple that could house you. And plus, remember Moses again. God appeared to him in the burning bush. Not in the temple, in a burning bush Out in the desert, not at the temple in Jerusalem, out in the desert. And he said to Moses, take off your sandals because the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. 
And then God moved around with them the tabernacle in the wilderness. Wherever they pitched the tabernacle, there was God's presence. The point Stephen is making is God is wherever his children are. God's not boxed up in some building. God's not boxed up in some temple. Wherever God's people are, that's where God is in their midst. And plus the law promised a coming Messiah. The law wasn't an end in and of itself. It pointed to the one who was coming who is better than the law. And then he comes down to verse 51. Boy, you can see it now, can't you? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. You can almost hear the air suck out of the place when he gets to that. Stephen gives a defense of his faith. Gives a defense why he is now a follower of Jesus. He was opposed for being a follower of Jesus. He explains to them how they of all people, if they knew their Bible, they should have known God was heading somewhere in the old covenant. He was prophesying about the new covenant and in Jesus Christ those days are now here is what he's saying. They should have known. Well, the third thing, and this is not a mere repetition of the first point, but we see that faithful Christians will not always be well received. Now, point number one, they opposed his person because he was a follower of Christ. And they accused him and slandered him. After his defense, now now they oppose his teaching, his defense. And so neither his person nor his message We're well received. Now folks, I say all of what we've said to kind of begin drawing drawing the net here on on this narrative in Acts 6 and 7. In some circles going around Christianity today, if you experience trials or suffering or difficulty, then you're told something must be wrong with you. There must be some kind of sin in your life. You must not have enough faith. For some reason or another, you're going through a trial in your life or a difficulty in your life because God is judging you or disciplining you. But in the Bible we see just the opposite. Often it's the faithful who suffer the most. Folks, we expect today not to have to suffer. But again, the Bible says the opposite. That you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to expect a little opposition and suffering in our life. Jesus said, no one can be my disciple unless he denies himself and picks up his cross and follows after me. Unless we die to ourselves and follow Jesus. And if we do that, we're going to be opposed sooner or later. 
Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. In our rapture theology, we have become escapist. We think one of these days we're just going to be taken out of here and going to avoid all this trial and tribulation on the, on, on the earth. I myself has, have preached that. And I hope I'm right. I hope we are taken out. But it's, it's put this mentality in us almost that we don't think there's supposed to be any kind of valleys or trials or tribulations that we go through that God's going to rapture us out of it. Do you realize there are just as many Bible-believing conservative Christians that actually argue the point just as effectively that the church is going to go through the tribulation, that the second coming and the rapture are going to be one event, that we're going to be raptured up to meet the Lord in the skies, and then we're going to be the ones who turn around to come back to the earth. And it's after we've gone through the tribulation. And I can preach that just as biblically to you as I can preach a pre-trib rapture. But we've developed this escapist mentality that somehow or another we want to believe that we're the only people alive in Christian history, the only generations alive in Christian history that aren't supposed to face any difficulty in our walk with God. And in the Bible we see the exact opposite that our Christian faith is supposed to have to cost us something. Are you willing to take a stand if that day comes? I'm not sure we're ready. I'm really not. But again, here was Joseph. Here was Job. God said Job was a righteous man. And yet he suffered all this tribulation. Here was Daniel. And there was Jesus himself who was crucified. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all. Note that word all. He didn't say the majority or most or 99%. He said all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Folks, we are more concerned about being light and being comfortable than we are about being faithful. And something's got to change in modern day Christianity. It could actually be that comfort and acceptance is a sign of compromise. Not a sign of favor. We could be experiencing peace and comfort in the land because maybe, just maybe, in many circles in America, we've been too compromising with the message. Now look at the responses, the response of the religious leaders to Stephen. They rush at him. They stone him to death. And interesting what he says in verse 49, what Luke tells us, that they came with him at, with the gnashing of teeth, words that were sometimes used in the Bible of those who were demon-possessed. Wow. Stephen's response, 
Look at verse 54 and, and, and 55. It, it says in, 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 uh, in 55 rather. But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said behold I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now I want you to understand something about this. The book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 tells us that after Jesus died on the cross when Jesus made purification for our sins and he ascended back to the Father where did he ascend to? to the right hand of God and the writer of Hebrews says that there at the right hand of God Jesus took his seat now what we need to understand is what's being communicated here in the Bible about taking a seat or standing as far as redemption is concerned as far as Jesus accomplishing our salvation he's taken his seat in other words there is nothing else that remains to be done for our redemption Jesus did it that's why on the cross just before he died he said it is finished Romans 3.25 says he's the propitiation for our sins. He's our sin sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice needed for salvation. You don't have to try to work your way to God. You couldn't even if you tried. You can't earn it. It is a free gift of God through faith in Christ. So as far as redemption, as far as having peace with God, being reconciled to God, being a child of God and having your name written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus has taken his seat at the Father because the work of redemption is done. But when it comes to intercession, his watch care over his saints, he's standing. What's being communicated here is that Jesus himself is a witness to all that is going on there with Stephen. Jesus is watching over him. There are some Christians today that go through trial and tribulation and say, Pastor, I feel all alone. Where's, where's God? I feel abandoned by God. Where does the Bible say God is when God's children are going through trials and tribulation? He's standing. He's watching over us. He's not unconcerned. Remember what King David said back in Psalm 139? In Psalm 139, David begins asking a series of questions in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Surely, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. What's King David saying? God is everywhere. You're not alone. You who are going through trials and tribulation, you who might be going through persecution in your life, maybe you have friends or family members or work associates who are opposing you because of your Christian faith and you're wondering where God is. God is right there with you. He is watching over His children. 
Now, folks, if we're not about the Lord's business, we don't have any business claiming that promise. The end of the Great Commission where Jesus tells us to go, He says, and lo, I'm with you always. As we're about His business, He's with us. The Bible says that we're going to suffer. 1 Peter 4 says, if we suffer, let it be for doing right. If you suffer for doing wrong, you're just getting the consequences you deserve. But if you're suffering for doing right, you are blessed. Remember what Daniel's three friends found when when, when Nebuchadnezzar threw them in that fiery furnace? All of a sudden, the king comes back and he looks in that furnace and he says, Hey guys, time out a minute. Didn't we throw three guys, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in that burning furnace? And they said, yeah. Well, I see four, and the fourth one looks like the Son of God. God is with us in the midst of our conflicts as we live for Jesus Christ. But what do we do today? We turn and run. We keep our mouths closed. We don't speak up when we should. We don't take a stand when we should. And we don't experience this intimacy and presence with God that the saints in the Bible did. And we think somehow or another we're supposed to be spared from it all. Notice how Stephen dies. He said, receive my spirit. And then he said, exactly like Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. Here was a man who is being killed because of his faith in Jesus. And he says, Lord, forgive them. Could it be that you today need to forgive somebody? If a man who's having his life taken can say, forgive them, I don't think anybody's opposed us that much yet. Nobody's trying to kill us. Shouldn't we forgive those who have trespasses against us? Yes. We're like Jesus when we do that. But what I'm wanting you to see is just like in that poem, Footprints. You remember that poem? That person said, through the most difficult times of my life, Lord, there were two sets of footprints in the sand, but when I got to the most difficult time in my life, Only one set of footprints that I look back and say, Lord, where were you? And the Lord said, my child, in those moments is when I was carrying you. Some lessons quickly. Number one, never underestimate the importance of your character. Remember who Stephen was? He was a man of a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Character counts. A man of character like that, look at what God did in his life. It shouldn't be any surprise to us how God was able to use him. How about your character today? Do you have a godly character like Stephen? Second lesson, be prepared to obey 1 Peter 3.15. Can you give a rational, logical presentation of God's plan of redemption? 
You see, folks, while God can use us on the spot at any moment in our lives, God expects us to be prepared vessels. Are you prepared? Are you preparing yourself to be used by God? Thirdly, be prepared to suffer for your faith. Are you prepared to perhaps even one day die for your faith? Folks, I've got a suspicion and it's just a personal hunch. But I've got a suspicion that the American church may be getting ready to be shaken to its very foundation. And in a church that has loved consumerism, what's in it for me? It's going to be interesting across the land to see who takes a stand and who doesn't. Are you prepared to suffer? And then lastly, pray for your enemies. They may remember they may be taking it out on you, but it's actually God that they're expressing their hatred and hostilities to. They need our prayers. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? I want to ask you right now to pray for the suffering church. Pray for the persecuted church around the world. Folks, think about it. 135 nations where your brothers and sisters in the Lord in some of those places are paying a very, very, very high price for their faith. They need strength. Pray for Christians in these last days to be able to offer a very clear presentation of the gospel. These are not days to be watering it down or changing it, but offering instead a very clear presentation of what God's Word teaches. And folks, pray that you and I will not shrink back. These are not days to shrink back. These are days to be bold. God help us. We're seeing in the world right now, God, what saints in in both testaments experienced Lord they're the heroes that we read about in church every week that we study in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and yet we've not had to go through a lot of that God we thank you for that the the peace that we've had but God we also see now what's going on in the world And it may be changing times for us. God help us to be strong for Christ. Make us bold. Make us courageous. Lord it says of the saints in the New Testament that they love not their lives even unto death. That's the key.
Help us not to love even our lives more than we love you. God, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody. But if we should, may we be found faithful. And Lord, I pray for that one in the congregation right now. Maybe a student in school. It could be a wife with her husband. Could be parents with a child who are facing opposition and they're suffering. I pray that even today you would encourage them. May your presence toward them be strong and mighty. We pray in Christ's name.